You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Today we're going to be in 2 Timothy and we're finishing our series that's been titled The Legacy. And it's titled The Legacy because of this simple reason, is so many people are focused on building and creating a legacy in life leaving behind a legacy. But ultimately, we see Paul's legacy in the last letter that Paul ever wrote. He wrote it to someone he'd been discipling, a young man named Timothy. And what he's leaving him is not ultimately Paul's legacy, but he's reminding him to keep the legacy of Christ alive, to remember the legacy of Christ. Let that be the very thing that defines your life. And so that's why we've titled this epistle, this book, and this series, The Legacy, because it's not ultimately about us and our legacy. It's about us proclaiming the legacy, the name and the fame of Jesus Christ. As we've said before, in one generation, it is assumed. In the next generation, it's forgotten. And then the next generation, the gospel is lost. So we keep the gospel, the legacy of the news, the work of Christ up front constantly in church. So that's where we're going to be at. There's no way I can do justice to this chunk of passage in the amount of time I've given. But we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 14. And we're going to work through chapter four, probably finish up around verse eight today. We also remember this, that this is a day that marks history in the U.S., a day that is a tragic day, a day, um, I guess, is it 21, 21 years ago? 21 years ago is when 9-11 originally happened. And so, and that's something that we can easily forget. That's something that maybe we didn't even remember today. But it's a piece of news and it's a piece of bad news that happened. That still the tragedy has impacted people's spouses, people ki- uh, uh, people's children to this day. So let's pray for that. Let's pray for our country and let's pray as we dive into God's word this morning. So Father, we're thankful first of this, that in all the bad news that's in the world, we have the good news. That we get to proclaim and teach the work of Jesus. That news is the very news that defines our lives. We're not defined ultimately by what we do or don't do. We're defined by what Christ has done in our place. That's good news. There is bad news. Bad news of what happened in our country 21 years ago. Bad news of what happens all the time. And so God, those that were directly impacted from this, that lost spouses, that lost parents, that lost friends, Father, be with them and comfort them today. God, be with our country, be with the leaders. Ultimately, we pray for their salvation. We pray for wisdom. Father, lead our elders at this church with wisdom, with humility, with grace. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for the day that we get to gather. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you have spoken. Thank you that your word teaches us, even as Ian was just saying, about your salvation that you've provided. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in the South until I was a teenager, and then we moved to Oregon. So grew up in Texas. And when I moved to Oregon... I was treated a little differently on the bus, and I didn't know why at first, but kids weren't talking to me, and I finally found out that kids thought that I had a speech problem, like a speech impediment from how I talked. They had obviously never been around Southern people before, but so they had a hard time understanding me, and so I would say words, and some of the most common words I would say were were words like y'all or fixin', but the time that really threw people is that I, I talked about McDonald's and that I liked Egg Mac muffins and really emphasized the Mac on there. And that was something that I guess you don't do in the Northwest. And, and so I, I, was, I was given a hard time for the way that I talked. But then I realized recently 
that my wife and I were at a country concert, and the, this guy was also from the South, and he was saying things, and she couldn't understand him, so I was translating. So I'm like, so yeah, I'm bilingual. Uh, and so, and then I, it dawned on me that every time when my dad was alive that he used to call, and my dad was born and raised in Arkansas his, his whole life, is uh, she, she would always be like, I can't understand a thing your dad says. And so she'd put it on speakerphone, and I would basically translate that conversation too. And then even at our wedding, my dad gave a speech, and almost everyone at that wedding said, we have no clue what your dad said the entire time. He ended his speech, well, that's the finest boy right there in the United States of America. That's the only thing people, that's the only thing people understood. So yeah, I'm bilingual and the finest boy in the United States of America. So there you go. <clears throat> I say all this to say, I'm going to give you guys a little culture, a little Southern language this morning as our main point. And the main point is going to be this. It's so grammatically incorrect, it's not even funny, Okay. He done did it, okay? He done did it. Now, if you grow up in the South, you realize the South has their own contractions. Contraction is when you bring words together, you shorten them up. And so some of those contractions would be something like, y'all want some. And you can shorten this in the South by just saying, yaunt some, you know? You just shrink it all together, yaunt some. That's, that's one way you can do this. Uh, couldn't have would be a pretty Northwest way of saying something, but couldn't is how people would say it in the South, like you couldn't have made it here that fast. You just couldn't. So you just add an A to it. You shorten the whole thing up. So saying this today, say this, I grew up hearing these types of phrases, this type of slang, this type of speech. So I know that he done did it is not grammatically correct. But what it means is this, is when someone from the South say, oh, he done did it now, it's typically not a great thing. But we're going to look at it as this this morning, that he done did it as in Christ has done and did it all as a really good thing. A past event is what Christians are looking at. What we are focused on is the good news of all that he has done. So that's it. That's our main point this morning. He done did it. And we're going to look at this first in verses 14 through 16 of chapter two, that the Bible is all about him and that he done did it. So the Bible's all about him and he done did it. That's where we're going to be at starting with 14. But as for you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So let's start there. The Bible is about him and that he had done it, all of it. The Bible, even as Ian was just saying, from beginning to end, is this collection of 66 books. It's a library, but it's a library with one main author being God himself, not overtaking people's personalities, but through people's personalities, conveying exactly what he wanted communicated through them. This happened over about 1,600 years with 40 different authors. It's incredible to see the continuity that these books all have together. And what that is, is it's one subject matter. It's, it, it, it's the Bible is not a manual. We, we need to make that clear because I, I oftentimes hear people say, our Bible's like a manual. It tells us what to do, what not to do. We kind of treat it like that. The, the Bible primarily is not a manual. But the Bible prim primarily is also not a yearbook, and people treat it like that, like, I'll kind of flip to something here and see what people said about me and what it has to say about me here and treat it like that. The Bible is primarily a him book, meaning that it's all about him being Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, the Bible is a him book about 
Jesus Christ, the work that he did, the work that he accomplished. I love the way that Alistair Begg says it. He says it so well. We find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. The scriptures from beginning to end are about Jesus Christ. It says here, Paul says it, continue in what you have learned. he's, he's, He's saying this, you don't need anything trendy. You don't need anything new. You don't need some sort of new way to to go about building the church, equipping the church, feeding the church. What you need to do is continue, hold fast, remain, abide. That's what this means. Stay in the word that you've learned. He learned it from his mother and he learned it from his grandmother. We see that from chapter one in this letter but we also see that the scripture is able to do this. It's able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. The scripture is about salvation. The scripture is a hymn book that is about how he, him, rescued us. The scripture is all about that he done did it and he's done did it all perfectly. That's what this book is primarily about. It's a salvation book that is able to make you wise for salvation. That's why in the gospel of Luke, Jesus says, as he's walking with the disciples on the Maus Road, he, he, he's, he's explaining to them. He's like, it's all about me. The Old Testament, it is about me. When he, when he rebukes the Pharisees, he, he, he's telling them, he's like, you don't understand the scriptures because you don't understand that the scriptures are primarily, most importantly, about salvation that is found in me. And if you don't understand what the word of God is and what it's done and what it's capable of doing to make you wise for salvation, then you won't understand it. You'll try to be a master over it, or you'll misunderstand it. It's not to say that we don't take books in their context. We do. We read the Bible in its context and understand the beauty of that, but inside of the context, what we're able to see is this context is still ultimately going to point to a way that the text finds its fulfillment in the work of Christ and the salvation that he brings. The Bible is about him and that he had done it and that he done did it. Here's the problem. There's a pretty famous atheist, his name's Bart Ehrman. Bart will go around and debate Christians on the validity of scripture, but he starts off his debates the same way almost every time, and he starts it off like this. He says, how many of you guys here have read The Hunger Games? And almost every hand goes up. And he says, then, how many of you guys believe that this is the word of God? It's divine, it's authoritative, it's living, it's active, it's inspired. Almost every hand goes up. Then he asks this question. How many of you guys have actually read the Bible? And hardly any hands go up. So what he's saying is there seems to be some sort of inconsistency. We're willing to spend a lot of time watching a lot of stuff, diving into a lot of stuff, but if if Christians actually believe this is God's word, that it's been breathed out, meaning that it's inspired by God, that all of it, All the way through Genesis to Revelation, it is breathed out, inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. Why don't we spend time diving into it, seeing how it all points to Christ? Our our aim to dive into the word is not so that God will accept us because we have great Bible study methods or because we are very devoted. We dive in the word to see that Christ did it all and that it's a book that's telling us that salvation is found in Christ alone. It's this amazing book that has this power to do that. Do you know that this book, as John 17, 17 says, it says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. 
It also says that the Bible is living and active. It's able to cut to our deepest parts. This book has the power to cut. It has the power to uh, to sanctify us. It has the power to heal us. No other book, when you open up, has the ability to save, to transform, to heal, to convict, to encourage, but to ultimately bring eternal life. I like one author that says, our Bibles are so undervalued that your car could get broken into, and the very thing that conveys how we can have the treasures of life would be the one thing that never gets stolen out of your car, our Bibles. Do we see our Bibles at? Do we understand that our Bible's about him and that he done did it? All, everything. Or do we think that our Bible is primarily about us? This is what the reformers were fighting for. There's this word that the reformers were fighting for, the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning this, the clarity of Scripture. They were saying this, that not everything in Scripture is clear, but there is one thing that is clear, how salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. All the way through, that's clear. A child can understand that. So that's first. But then he also says this, that there's four things that Scripture is able to do, starting in 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's look at those. All Scripture is breathed out. We know that it's able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ, but all Scripture is breathed out, and it's profitable for teaching. Scripture is our teacher. Scripture is able to teach us this. It teaches us how Jesus Christ and how the gospel and how his saving work speaks to every area of life. Many people still today that sit in this church, that sit in many churches, believe that the gospel is my ticket into the door, and then it's all up to me from that moment on. But what we understand about the gospel from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it's the very gospel that saves us, that sustains us, that we stand in, that's continuing to save us. And so when we teach the Bible, what we're teaching is how that message of salvation applies to every area of life. Next week, we're going to be looking at friendship, and we're doing a mini-series for two weeks, but we're going to see how the gospel speaks to friendship. We're going to see that the Godhead, the Trinity, has had a best friendship for all eternity. This is why we long for friendship, and we're going to see that ultimately our greatest friendship is not found in something we do or how we are a friend to others, but ultimately in how Christ is the perfect friend to us. That shapes our friendship. Otherwise, we compare. We're like, oh, I'm a better friend here. I'm a better friend here. But when we look at this, we failed at friendship. Christ is the ultimate friend that pursues us lovingly, sacrificially, with a ton of devotion. It changes the way that we think. So when we teach, as Paul says, he was in Corinth for 18 months. Paul goes, I profess to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean Paul was walking on the streets of Corinth going, Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus Christ and him crucified, Jesus Christ. He was saying that the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ speaks to everything in life. That's why the Bible doesn't have these long things on parenting, these long sections on this and the long sections on that. Because Paul, ultimately God knew that the gospel could speak to all areas. So it's able and it's used for teaching, for reproof, for discipline, for correction. This can be translated conviction. God's word is able to convict you. And I would say this, is that if you are letting the word master you, then it's going to convict you. If you are trying to become your own authority, then you'll never read this book with a level of conviction. When you read it and you go, oh, that stings, or man, I'm missing the mark there. You're probably reading it right because you're reading it as your authority. It's able to correct you. It's able to convict you. What else is it able to do? Reproof for correction. I've commonly told people this. The Bible is able to correct us. In fact, in the Old Testament, what would happen is shepherds would actually tie 
lanterns to their ankles so that when they walked and led their sheep, they could see where they were stepping. That's why we understand this, that the word is a lamp unto our feet. It actually guides, corrects, and leads our path so we know where we're stepping. Otherwise, we step off a cliff and so do all the sheep that we're leading. It's able to correct us. A ship, when it's off by five degrees, is not going to make that big of a difference if you're sailing across Fern Ridge. A ship off by five degrees when you sail across an ocean is going to get you to the wrong location. Scripture is able to correct our paths, to keep us in the right direction, so that by the end of our lives, we're not somewhere else that we're supposed to be. And training in righteousness. People hire personal trainers to work on their external. Scripture is able to train us in righteousness. Think about this. If you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, this is true for you. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him you are, will become the righteousness of God. So scripture is able to train us in righteousness. What it's able to do is train you in the righteousness that you already possess in Christ and help you live out of that righteousness. So you're not living in such a way to pursue righteousness so that God will see you as righteous. God has made you fully righteous in his sight. And scripture is able to teach us how we now live out of that righteousness that Christ has given us. You see, if you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you've been legally acquitted, pardoned, no, innocent, not guilty. That's what's happened to you. You don't go back into the courtroom. You're not retried. There is no double jeopardy. None of those things happen. Once you are declared by God that you're innocent, righteous, and guiltless, that's what you are for all eternity. Why? God is immutable. He never changes. The name he's given you, son and daughter, remains. The justification he's given you is legally declared righteous, never changes. The, the word teaches us how to live out of the identity that we have that will never change. That's a beautiful thing. Next, starting in chapter four, we're going to look at this. So first we've seen the Bible's all about him and that he done did it. Now we're going to look at this. We herald that he done did it. Okay. He done did it. He done did it all. He supplied the righteousness that we need, but our job is to herald that he's done did it. Let me say this before we move on, because I think this is worth saying. We spend a lot of time, a lot of time inside of the church and inside of churches talking about ways in which we might create systems or do stuff or church growth and, and stuff like that. Let me read this quote from Alec Natir, who I, I, I love, wrote a phenomenal book on preaching. But this is what Alec Natir says. He says, what we call the Acts of the Apostles is a case in point. In its 28 chapters, there are about 37, 37 references to the growth of the church. Indeed, the growing church would be a more suitable title than the Acts of the Apostles. Listen to this. Of the 37 or so references, six associate growth with quality of church life and Christian character, seven link growth with the evidence of signs and wonders, and 24 link growth with the preaching of the word of God. Indeed, in Acts 12.24, the growth of the church is actually called the growth of the word, as if they were so closely related they could be identified one with the other. What do we need to grow a church deep and wide? God's word, preached, declared. Not something new, not something trendy. In fact, Martin Luther says this. He, he, he says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did it all. I did nothing but left it to the word. It brings Satan distress when we only spread the word and let it alone do the work. That's Luther. If you want to look at church growth, if you want to look at discipleship, if you want to look at all these things in growth, it's from the word, <laughs> which means this Christian family, church family, is that we can't remain 
illiterate with our Bibles. The word disciple means learner. It means that we study, that we're students, that we're diving into the word to see all that Christ has done and what he's made us. Look here, verse four, chapter four, verse one. We herald that he done did it. I charge you, Paul talking to Timothy, look at the language here. It's not, hey, Timothy, maybe we could, you could consider this. This is one option. He's saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's what he tells him. Preach the word. That word preach means herald. It can be translated herald. And back in the first century, they actually had people, their, their job was to herald. They, they were heralders. They would go into the town center and they would herald news that had been that had taken place. They would say, hey, we just conquered this town or we, this just happened. And the people would know what to do based upon the news they heard. Sadly, so sadly, that many times what happens from the pulpits, gospel communities, and all that is not actually heralding what Christ has done. It's a message on what we need to do. That's this, the preacher's job is to herald the gospel. It's to, it's to declare what Christ has done. Our primary job, yes, we can speak on what to do. Scripture speaks on that. Yes, it, it trains us in righteousness. But the primary job of the preacher and the primary job that we have is to preach, is to herald not all these things to do. It's Christ and that he done did it all. That's what we're actually, that's what heralders did. They went into the marketplace, they went into the town center, and that's what they did. We would understand this, that when 9-11 did happen, something happened to us whenever we watched that. News happened. We knew at that point it was time to gear up and arm up and get ready. Same thing that heralders would do. If they brought in bad news, you knew that it was time to get ready for a fight. But when the heralder brought in good news, it disarmed you. It changed the way you would live your life because we, we don't have to get ready for combat. We don't have to get ready for war. We don't have to get ready to try to conquer or, or, or hide in our bunkers or anything like that. What we can do is live with peace now because they brought the good news that the fight is done, the war is over. That's what Christians get to declare. The fight is done, the war is over. Christ done did it all. We herald that. Look at what he says here. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Okay. We herald that he done did it. That's what we do. But we have to be ready to do that in season and out of season. The, another translation is you can't just do it when it's convenient for you. Because there's going to be times when people come up and they want you to give a defense for the faith that you have. And oftentimes that's not when you're most ready for it. It's at a summer barbecue. It's at a picnic. It's with coworkers. And what he's saying here is be ready in those seasons. Be ready to herald the gospel. And for us as Christians, we herald the gospel all the time. And we don't just do it for non-Christians. We do it for Christians. It's not that non-Christians need the gospel more than the, than the Christians. It's that we all need it. In fact, if you go to a gospel community, what it should be is this, is that we're all heralding the gospel to one another, sharing the good news of what Christ has done, what he's made us, who he's made us, the identity he's given us. And now, how do we live out of this? How does the scripture teach us how to live in accordance with our new grace-given identity in Christ? But that's what it should be. I think my wife does a really good job at heralding the gospel to me. And she does a remarkable job of that. Let me give you guys an example. Maybe you guys will think less of me with this, with this example. But share it anyways. I was sharing with Brad and Zach a couple weeks ago that sometimes I like or I enjoy. How do I phrase this so it doesn't sound as bad? 
getting in arguments with my wife in the evening time. I know this sounds bad. I'm just saying, I already prefaced you so that I can watch whatever movie I want to watch, okay? I know that sounds awful. So I told them that. It wasn't like a discipleship tactic to where I was like, hey, guys, you ever want to watch your own movie? Pick a fight. I was like, and I said it, and then I felt convicted, and I was like, dang it. I've told you guys that. I should probably tell my wife that. So I went home, and I'm like, I got, I got, I got to share something with you. I've shared it with these guys. I share it with you. Sometimes I don't actually mind if we get in arguments because then I can watch my movie. And she's like, Rick, <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> I think the same thing. And I was like, Phew. good. But what she will all, almost always do whenever I confess sin to her is remind me that I'm not my sin. My sin does not define me. What Christ has done for me is the thing that defines me. She's heralding good news to me. This preaching isn't something that just preachers do on a Sunday morning. It's actually something that we all do to one another in our lives. Let's herald the good news to each other. Let's remind one another the good news. That's something that all Christians in all parts of the world are all called to do equally. Herald good news. And it says to do this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Let's start here with that list. Reprove. What does that mean? To correct people, to expose when someone is living false, to expose when someone's believing something that is contrary to the truth of God's word. We don't do that harshly. We don't do that in a way that is demeaning. We do that as Timothy, or as Paul has said to Timothy throughout this letter, with complete patience and with gentleness. But nonetheless, we do it. Many of us haven't faced persecution like Paul keeps telling Timothy because we choose to allow people to live in a state that's going to be destructive to their lives because we like approval and love ourselves more than we actually love other people. It also says to rebuke. That's, this is fun, right? When's the last time you rebuke someone and they're like, oh my gosh, thank you for rebuking me. Like, thanks for taking the time to go out of your way to love me more than you and rebuke me. It doesn't happen. Why? Because we can sing amazing grace. I once was lost and now I'm found. We can sing how much we need the grace of God. We can tell our friends and stuff, we're broken. But as soon as someone comes and points out our brokenness, we're like, oh yeah? Yeah? It's like, we're defensive. I, I thought you said like you need the grace of God and Jesus Christ's perfection. Yeah, but I don't need you telling me that I need it. But we're called to do this, to rebuke. I love the way that the LSJ Greek lexicon actually translates this. It says to lay a value upon. Think about rebuke like that. When you aren't living consistent to who you are in Christ, it's my job to come and remind you the value that Christ has given you. You're living as though you don't matter to the king. You're living as though you're not a treasured possession to God. You're living as though you're not a son or a daughter who's been made pure and perfect. Let me remind you of the value that you have and remind you of the value that's been laid upon you. That changes rebuke. That changes discipleship. So much of discipleship is stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. Discipleship should be start living to who you are in Christ. Start living out of the purity. Start living out of the new creation you have. Start living into this and out of this. And he says exhort. This can also be translated encourage. Again, one of the, one of the reasons we have a gospel community is, is because it's really difficult for you guys to exhort me from out here or for us to do that to one another on a Sunday. But one of the ways that we can exhort or encourage one another is in the context of Christian community. And it's what we're called to do. And I will say this, that I am still in ministry today because God has placed faithful encouragers in my life who have told me to keep going. 
We are called to meet together. We're called to encourage one another, spur one another on, to urge one another to live into who we are in Christ and to keep fighting the good fight. Then he says this at the end of verse two, do this with complete patience and teaching. Do you know what that means? He's saying patience, do this with patience, but do this in totality. It means this, that Christians actually need to be equipped in their Bibles. They need to know that it's telling one redemptive story of Christ's salvation. They need to know what is going on in this book and, and, and the salvation that it shares. And here's the thing. Oftentimes we'll say like, yeah, the reason I don't do that is I don't understand it and stuff like that. If we're completely being honest, sometimes I think that we just are a little lazy and we don't want to take the time intellectually to study and to think and to learn. Because it's not that we don't have those thoughts. I, I remember my wife and I were laying in bed not that long ago and, and uh, she asked me what I was thinking about, you know? because I was just laying there. Apparently, I looked like I was in deep thought, and she was, and she was like, what are you thinking about? And I was like, I was wondering if Kuyu still had their sale on hunting clothes. And she was like, okay, okay. And I was like, well, what were you thinking about? It was complex. Like, it was really deep. And I'm like, that's not where I was at, you know? And so we have the ability, and many of you guys know that when you lay in bed at night, you're like, all right, all right, time to turn it off. Boom, it's on. Every complex thought. So it's not that we don't have the ability to think through these things. It's oftentimes that we're just lazy and don't want to. But it's saying, man, if 10%, 20% of the church was, was, was growing in biblical literacy, seeing how it all came to its fruition in Christ, man, what an impact that would have on the church and on our cities that we live in. We herald that he done did it. That's our job. That's every Christian's job. And it says here, keep reading. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fill your ministry. What an evangelist is and what that word means is to be a good news teller. Our job is to be people that tell the good news. Christian, church family, I'll say this, that oftentimes what we need to do in our town, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, is we need to do the work of an evangelist. We need to actually build some relationships with non-Christians and share the hope of the gospel with them. I, I'm just going to tell you guys, I, hate, I loathe the saying, show people the gospel, however that goes, and if, if at all necessary, use words. That is horrible. The gospel is news. News is heralded, not shown. Who's going to say that the Mormon's life, the Jehovah's Witness life, and the Christian's life looks that much different because our message looks radically different? We got a herald. We got to preach. We got to proclaim. And in fact, we need to be equipped to do this as a church that goes out. It's not just bring all your friends in. It's us going out. In the first century, they couldn't oftentimes bring people back to their house churches or to the places they were at. Why? Because it could be jail for everyone. You had to be equipped to go out and to evangelize and do the work of the evangelist. And know this, as he said, time's coming. People are going to want all sorts of other teaching, but not the gospel. It's our job at GCC, and it's any preacher's job to not constantly bash every false doctrine there is, but to make you clear on what false doctrine is and what false teaching is. And the best way we can do that is by presenting to you the clarity of what the gospel is. In fact, people that study counterfeit money are constantly looking at the real deal so they know when a counterfeit comes through. Our job is to constantly put the gospel of Christ in front of you so everything else will become tasteless to that. Okay. The Bible is about him and that he done did it. We herald that he done did it. Now, verses six through eight. 
We celebrate and keep the faith that he done did it. Look here, verse six through eight. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We celebrate and keep the faith that he done did it. Look at what Paul says here. And he says this in 1 Timothy 2. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In 1 Timothy, he says, fight the good fight. Then he backs up what that is. It's keeping the faith. We have to keep the faith that he done did it. We have to keep the faith that Christ has done did it all. In fact, the reason why we wallow in shame, the reason why we wallow in sin is because it's a faith issue. We don't have faith that Christ has done it, that he done did it, that he done paid enough. I believe, help me with my unbelief. That's a faith problem. Let me say this. Sin separates us from God. Jesus done taking care of that. Sin requires a perfect sacrifice and atonement to appease God's righteous and holy wrath. Jesus done taking care of that too. Sin requires legal pardoning, and he done that too. What he's done, and what he's done did, is he's made you royalty in God's eyes. Think about that. So one of the pastors I love is Isaiah 61.10. We're coming to a close here. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see, we already have the righteousness of Christ, the robe of righteousness. God sees us as complete, as holy, as perfect. We can't change that. What Paul is saying is when we keep the faith and keep professing that our faith is not in our works, our efforts, our best days, but is in Christ, at the end of this life, we get a crown. It's like the final adorning piece that symbolizes this. You are a co-heir of Christ. I have seen you as complete. I have seen you as sinless. I have seen you as holy. And now you are at that spot in that state, completely there. You see, we that are in Christ are co-heirs, holy, righteous, Look at what Isaiah 62 says. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning bush. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. Remember, because Christ was forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. That's what the bride of Christ is called. My delight is in my bride. And your land married. For the, listen, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. You, you, you have to hear me as, as I'm coming to an end here. That Christ is not committed to your progress. Christ is not, you're here once you get here, I will love you more. I'll be more committed to you. He's not committed to your progress. He's not committed to your production. He, he, his love doesn't waver and rise and fall based upon your sin and the days where you battle really well or the days where you failed miserably. God's love is connected to the fact that his son done did it all for you. He's never going to be more committed to you than he is right now. You might grow. Hopefully you do. You will become more sanctified. 
But God's love is not going to change because the message is that we get to celebrate and keep the faith that he done did it all. It's really hard because we live in a culture that values production, efficiency, and all the things that we can do. And then we come to the gospel and it's all about Christ and all that he has done and us simply doing this. Jesus, I trust you. My confidence is in you. I'll end with this. You need to dig up the past. People will oftentimes tell you don't dig up the past. I'm going to tell you, dig up the past. In fact, dig it up a lot. Just don't dig up your past. Dig up his. Don't dig up what you did last night. Don't dig up all the things that you should and shouldn't have done and wallow in those things. Dig up the fact that he done did it all. <laughs> he walked this earth perfectly. He died in your place. He took the sins and the punishment they deserve and buried them in the tomb. Leave them there and live into the victory that he's provided. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that the day will come when we receive the crown of righteousness. Jesus, the final piece to the righteousness that you've already supplied. God, help us to be a people of faith in Jesus. Help our faith to increase. Help us not to wallow in sin, wallow in shame. But if we're going to wallow in anything, let us wallow in the cross and the sufficiency that's there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.